Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're discussing Age of Opportunity, Chapter 7. Before we start discussing the chapter, we're going to play this or that. Adrian, let me ask you one. This or that. Have lots of kids. So not your one kid. Have lots of kids or adopt lots of dogs? Mm. Okay, the answer is going to be adopt lots of dogs. (laughs) I love kids, but, uh, you know, it's complicated. It's hard. It's hard work. I know that dogs are, like, also complicated and hard work. And I've had a dog before that really impacts your life. (laughs) Yeah. Quality of life. When they have problems, you have problems. When they have health problems. Like, I know, Laura, you were literally at the vet right before we had our (laughs) podcasting appointment. So I know how that goes. But I think the commitment with dogs is a little shorter. So I'm going to go with dogs. (laughs) Do I even have to ask you? I think I already know. Oh, yeah. It's dogs. Obviously. (laughs) Of course. I've already made that choice. And it's actually, it's not adopt lots of dogs. It's purchase lots of dogs. (laughs) Oh. And And we're purchasing. Well, I mean, I did... I did in my past adopt a dog when I met you. I had an, a dog from a shelter. Yes. But, you know, we like a certain type of dog in my house and you can't get a lot of rescue dachshunds. They're available every once in a while. Okay. What do you have for me? Okay. So my question is this or that ebooks or audiobooks? Oh, if I could only do one, I would choose audiobooks. Okay, interesting. I am a equal. I read all three types of books. I read a hard copy. I read my Kindle and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Like right now, what I've got going on is Age of Opportunity, both the hard copy and on my Kindle. Yes. I've got like a romance like a hate to love romance novel also on my Kindle for reading before bed. Yes. And then I've got like a health and wellness book. Yeah. And that's what I'm listening to on audiobook. So I do all of them. But I guess if I had to give up my Kindle, I could just read hard copy books. 
and then still listen to my audiobooks. You know, and I have to say, I think that audiobooks are a lot more convenient too because you don't need your eyes for them. So like you can be working out, you could be walking and you're still absorbing the information. Whereas I don't ever use audiobooks. I mostly like Kindle or regular books. And if I'm using my Kindle, even if I'm on like my stationary bike, I don't know. Sometimes I wish I had audiobooks, but I don't really want to go down that path. <laughs> so you would choose the Kindle? Yeah, I have to. Because you don't listen to audiobooks. Um, No. And the advantage of Kindle for me is, first of all, so portable. And second of all, I think we've talked about this before, like much better for the beach. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like the white page of a paper book is so like the glare can be horrible. So if you're in a really sunny locale, it can be really nice to have the Kindle. But obviously the charging situation is like a major bummer. Have you ever been like right there about to finish a book and your battery like needs to be recharged? Okay. I've had my Kindle. Is it a paper white? Do you have a paper white? Is I that- have the Oasis. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I actually just got a cover for it. Can I show you? Let me go get it. Yeah. Show me <laughs> gonna your be Kindle. So <laughs> Let's see this thing. Okay, here's my cover. Oh, that is beautiful. Is it? I can't tell if it's like mountains or if it's like marble-y. It's like marble. Okay, so I'm going to describe this for our listeners. It's like many shades of blue marble, maybe a little gold fleck in there. Yes, (laughs) it's veining, veining in the marble, I would describe. (laughs) Gorgeous. (laughs) Okay, so, and I'll show you the Oasis is the Oasis because it has buttons here. So you can touch these buttons to change the page. Okay, that's nice. But mostly I just wanted something that was like a stand because I was so frustrated, like having to prop it up. Okay. So... This has, this part pops out, so you can, like, stand it up, like, tripod it. Oh, nice. And then also, it's a wallet. Uh-huh. Like, hey, would you like to just put some credit cards in your Kindle? Oh, you're a woman on the go. You don't even carry your phone. Like, all you carry is your little book and, like, I'm just your, reading. your ID and credit card are tucked away in there. <laughs> on the go reading. And then look at this. And a hand strap. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Anyway. (laughs) Well, I'd say my Kindle is much smaller than yours. It's so tiny. And then the thing is, the charge is, I don't know how long I've had this thing, two years. I feel like I have to charge it once every six months. It lasts forever, ever. And I read it all the time. I'm reading Age of Opportunity fully on Kindle because the font in Age of Opportunity is so small in the book. When I'm trying to take notes and stuff, I keep losing my place. So having it on the Kindle on this in this massive font is just so helpful. I love that. Anyway, okay, well, hope that was an enlightening conversation. I also just got like a little tablet pillow like stand that goes on your lap. Oh. Been really into accessorizing my Kindle, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine has no cover. It's just free. I would like something that helps me hold it. Yeah, it's it's a slippery little guy. It is, right? It's just like it's always Get stuck in the couch. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We hope you enjoyed that. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Age of Opportunity. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. (laughs) Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items, 
And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. Okay, so chapter seven from Age of Opportunity is called How Parents Can Make a Difference. And even though I am not myself a parent, I found this so interesting. Yes, I know. It was made so clear, like, which type of parenting is the best. It really kind of simplified things. It's like, hey, if you do these things, this is how your kid will have the best chance. So I loved it. What I liked about it was that I felt like finally we were getting to some, like, functional things we could actually do. And so I'm hoping that this is turning the corner in the book where now we know what all the problems are. And now we're going to be getting the information on like how to fix it. So even though this was about parenting, I could totally see how you could apply those three types that we're going to talk about to being a speech therapist. Like how can you be this type of speech therapist? So even it's applicable, even though the next chapter is where he's going to talk about the schools, but let's get into it. So he starts by describing the transition in regulation from infancy when you depend on your parents for regulation to adulthood when you are solely responsible for being able to regulate yourself. And he says three factors contribute. Emotional security, so whether you can move to self-regulation. Behavior, do you know how to act when you're on your own? And self-assurance, can you take responsibility for your actions? So basically, a kid needs to learn to be calm, competent, and confident. In order to help your child self-regulate, parents need to be warm, firm, and supportive. Those three things are going to be big in this chapter. If you've always been this way with your child, he will do well, but it's also possible to help kids in adolescence if this wasn't the case, if this isn't what they were getting at home. So first he starts describing what it means to be warm. It means being affectionate, giving lots of praise, and being responsive. This helps a child feel loved 
and it gives them a sense that the world is safe. When they're away from you, they won't worry that something or someone is going to hurt them. Parents who are cold or inconsistent in warmth make children feel insecure and they don't develop strong trust in themselves or other people. Expressions of warmth will vary from family to family, but the important thing is that the child feels he is loved, valued, and protected. So key points for this one. You cannot love your child too much. Some parents think it builds character to hold back their love, but it's the opposite. Children who feel genuinely loved are less needy and just better adjusted. Be physically affectionate, not just during infancy. Make sure that it's appropriate for their age, but just like a quick kiss or hug, a shoulder rub, this reinforces your emotional connection. Try to understand and respond to emotional needs. So observe a kid's moods carefully, react in ways that help their emotional development. And this will change as the child grows also. So he gives examples like when they are in toddlerhood, you reward when they exhibit mature behavior. And then in elementary school, maybe you set things up so they can experience a lot of success. And then provide opportunities for meaningful decision-making in adolescence. This reminded me of Smart But Scattered. They had like a good thing on how to help kids prioritize and make decisions. Another key point is to provide a safe haven. So your home should be somewhere where a kid can relax and escape, limit exposure to stress, arguments, or out of control displays of emotion. And if a kid has had a tough day at school for whatever reason, they need a place where they can just relax and kind of be distracted from whatever's going on at school. And the last key point is to be involved in your child's life. It's the strongest predictor of a children's mental health, adjustment, happiness, and well-being. Children with involved parents do better in school. He says to casually talk with them, get to know their friends. Kids whose parents know their friends are less likely to take risks or get into trouble. And it might take work to be really involved maybe some adjustments to your schedule, but he says it will absolutely be worth it in the end. Next, he describes how to be firm. And he says, spell out the rules for your child. Require him to, I keep saying him, require her to behave maturely and responsibly. Children raised this way know what parents expect and know that there will be consequences for misbehavior. Lenient parents don't have a lot of rules or enforce rules inconsistently and children who are raised by lenient parents feel like they can do anything or just generally don't have a feeling of what is or is not acceptable behavior. Structure makes children feel safe. They are not adults. Adults sometimes feel pressured or constrained when other people impose rules, which made me laugh thinking about like, think about a lot of people's reactions to COVID restrictions. When you put rules... <laughs> In place that adults have to follow, the reaction is wild sometimes, you know. But kids crave structure. They want to know the rules. They want to know the boundaries and the limits. He says, we learn how to regulate ourselves by being regulated. So you impose the rules when they're young and then children take those rules and internalize them. Internal control can't develop unless the external control was there originally. He gives the example of teeth brushing. You have to be right on top of your kid teaching them to brush their teeth so that as adolescents and adults, they can do it on their own. And then he says to gradually relax the rules and limits as the child matures and show that he can regulate himself. So the key points for being firm. First, make expectations really clear. Don't assume a child or teen knows the rules. Don't state them vaguely like just saying clean your room 
and not spelling out exactly what that means. And when possible, use like a specific number. Like if it's, I expect you home at this time, give an exact time. Whenever you can, be crystal clear. Like if you're going to be late, make sure to call me. Yeah. Just so I'm not worried and like spelling out the consequences too for yourself. Like when I'm worried because you're not home, when you say you'll be home, then I can't sleep and then that impacts my day. Yeah. Second key point is explain your rules and decisions. Children have an easier time following rules when they understand why they're there in the first place and ask for the child's take on a certain rule, showing him that you value his opinion. This sets the child up so that they'll stand up for themselves later when they think something's unfair. And then be consistent. Inconsistent parenting leads to poor self-control in children. When you're consistent, good behavior becomes a habit that they don't even have to think about. So it's important to establish routines and consistency. Be fair. Impose rules that are logical and that make sense, but be flexible and re-examine the rules as your child matures. An example is when your kid is young, you say do your homework before you go out to play, but then as they learn to manage their time better, you might just say make sure your homework's done before bed. Don't confuse consistency with rigidity. You can still be flexible. And then finally, avoid harsh punishment. He says that all kids need to be punished sometimes, but don't demean the child, get physical, or get too emotional yourself when you are punishing a child. And effective punishment has these five, it was these five things. First, you identify the act that was wrong. Second, describe the impact. So like Adrian was saying, like, you were late, and so, you know, I couldn't sleep, I was up worrying. And then suggest an alternative for the undesirable behavior, like, you could have called me if you knew you were going to be late. Clearly state what the punishment for it will be, and then also set clear expectations for next time. And then last, be supportive. This is our next, so be firm, be, wait, be warm, be firm, and then be supportive. So for this one, he says, how well can you tolerate and encourage your child's ability to self-manage? Can you let go of the reins a little bit? And he says it's important to use scaffolding. The support you give kids as they develop skills to become more independent is scaffolding. And this means that you give the child just a little more responsibility gradually so that they'll feel good if they are successful, but won't have horrible consequences if they fail. Like if a child hasn't been home alone, you just leave her for one hour while you visit the neighbors. You don't leave her for four hours and expect her to put herself to bed and like make herself dinner because then she could fail or have something go really wrong, which could impact, you know, her well-being or her mm -hmm. confidence. An example of scaffolding teen driving would be you can drive during the day before you drive at night and no friends in the car at all until you've been driving for six months without a citation. He says there should be a balance between what the child can already handle and what they will soon be ready to handle. And this engages and strengthens the brain circuits that regulate self-control. So key points for being supportive. First, set your child up to succeed. Create situations that will improve their confidence. And when your child's not successful, focus on what went right and help him figure out what to do differently next time. Praise accomplishments focusing on effort, not outcome. Praise helps children learn the value of working hard to achieve a goal and focus on the link between effort and accomplishment, not on things like grades or ratings. So instead of saying, 
I'm really proud that you got an A on the spelling test, you would say, I'm really proud of how well you spell. Don't be overly intrusive. A child needs to develop a sense of self-sufficiency. They need to know they can handle things without your help. They don't develop confidence in their own abilities if you're always stepping in and they need to make their own decisions even if they fail sometimes. You can maintain a nice balance between involvement and independence. Relinquish control gradually. So there should be a progressive exchange of external control for self-control. Gradually ease up on restrictions and give a child more responsibility. Each time you give more responsibility, observe carefully to see how the child responds. Another key point is to help the child think through decisions instead of making them for him. Help him see why one choice is better and give suggestions of things to consider. And then finally, protect when you must, but permit when you can. Children need to learn from their mistakes. Whenever it's safe, let the child make decisions on his own, even if you don't agree with it. Love that. Me too. I loved all of these. Really good suggestions. So now he gets into styles of parenting. And he says that we should strive to be all three. Warm, fair, and supportive. Okay, so you can't just be one like be super loving, but overly permissive. That doesn't work. The link between warmth and firmness is really important. If you're too firm, but you're not loving, child could perceive it as being harsh, and this could lead to defiance or feeling helpless. There are three parenting styles that predominate. Autocratic, which is a cold, firm, psychologically controlling parent who asserts power and control. They're really rigid. This does not foster healthy development because children need more warm, supportive parents. The second type of parenting is permissive. These parents are really warm and supportive, but they're too lenient. They indulge their children too much. They want to keep the child happy by not setting too many limits, and they want to avoid conflict with the child. And then authoritative is high in warmth, firmness, and support. These are parents who set limits like autocratic parents, but discipline comes from a place of warmth and support. They're firm without being harsh, and they're experts at scaffolding. These different parenting styles reflect different values. So autocratic parents prioritize obedience. They basically think their job is to make children obedient and well-behaved. Permissive parents prioritize happiness. They think children are basically good and that you shouldn't limit their curiosity. And then authoritative parents emphasize self-direction, maturity, and self-regulation. I think you can tell which one Dr. Steinberg likes the best. Hard to say. (laughs) So all parents want these things to some extent, but where you put your emphasis has a big impact. Authoritative parenting sounds negative. Doesn't that sound like, ooh, authority? (laughs) Yeah, to me it does. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't think that that would be the good one. But it's just like, you are the authority. You are the parent. And this is your job. All right. So the power of authoritative parenting. Kids from authoritative homes are more self-reliant and more self-controlled. It applies to people who aren't parents too. That's us. An authoritative approach to dealing with adolescents in the home, classroom, workplace, etc. leads to success. They're more confident, determined, and self-reliant, less susceptible to peer pressure, less likely to commit crimes. They report less anxiety, depression, and psychosomatic problems. They're better at delaying gratification so they can do better in school. 
and they have a better attitude towards schoolwork. But autocratic parenting leads to kids who aren't likely to get in trouble, but are disadvantaged psychologically. They have lower self-esteem, less confident and socially poised. They're less self-reliant, less persistent, and give up easily when obstacles come their way. And then permissive parenting. The kids that come from these homes are self-assured, confident, socially poised, but they have much more misbehavior. I think we've probably all encountered these kids as speech therapists and teachers. Definitely. (laughs) These kids have higher drug and alcohol use overall, lower school performance, less motivation to achieve, highly susceptible to peer pressure, and they're more oriented toward peers and less toward parents and other adults like teachers. The environment matters a lot when we're thinking about helping adolescents develop mature self-regulation because prefrontal cortex development is impacted by genetics and the environment. So all kids, because genetics do have an impact, all kids will develop some high-level thinking and self-regulation, but some improve a lot more than others depending on the environment. If you have warm, supportive, firm parents, you have a big advantage in higher level thinking and self-regulation. And there's this huge window for parents to help children develop self-control. But there's also a huge window for harm to be done. And authoritative parenting is the single most important factor in being able to develop self-control. Oh, that's the end of the chapter. It was a really short chapter. I feel like it had a lot of good information, but the end did kind of sneak up on you. I was like, next page of notes, please. (laughs) Okay, well, I was just thinking about this because as an SLP, I am the um, permissive SLP. I'm more of the like, loosey-goosey, don't want the kids to get mad at me. And what I always wanted to be was more the like, sit down, spell out the rules. I think I am that person who kind of thinks kids are good. They know the rules already. I expect them to know things that I haven't spelled out for them. And then I'm like disappointed when they don't follow a rule that I didn't even tell them about. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's me. I'm going to admit it. Right. Yes. You assume. Yeah kind of like assumption. I get that. But I think as a parent, I would be different because if it was my own kid, then I would be like, it's my job. I've got to teach them all these rules. I've got to set these boundaries for them. I don't picture that I would be permissive parent, but I know I'm permissive SLP. What type of SLP are you? Yeah, it is hard to be more authoritarian. Is that what he says? Authoritative? Authoritative. Yeah, authoritative. (laughs) Like in my house, we have a rule that there's no TV on until 6 p.m. Okay. And that it's like so hard to hold that rule, you know, but you have to because it's like if I'm not in charge and if I'm like loosey goosey, then who's in charge, right? Yeah. No one. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like not only my job to uphold the rule, but it's also my job to like, okay, if you're feeling bored and you want to watch TV and it's four o'clock, like let's think of three different activities we can do and, you know, we can choose from one of them. So I just I try to buy like lots of card games and stuff where we play board games and color and draw. And I try to have a lot of other things on hand. But I think I'm kind of the same way with speech kids. I try to be maybe I'm like a little lax with my middle schoolers and my high schoolers because I assume they kind of like know the rules. Yeah. Since they've been at it for so long. But I I think it's always worth it to kind of like at the beginning of the year sort of review and maybe the middle because you always have those kids who join speech kind of along the year when they qualify so yeah I know that like when I was on zoom 
when I was doing group sessions on Zoom, I did have like a rule thing and I would kind of keep it on the screen. You know, like no eating. Mute yourself if there's a bunch of background. I don't know. Like that was a time period where the kids did need, this wasn't something they necessarily knew. So we had to spell it out. It wasn't like, oh, they know what to do. It was like, no, I need to like keep this here and keep going over it and reinforcing it because this is a new thing for all of us and these kids need it. But basically pulling kids at school, third grader, you don't even, you're like, oh, you've been in school for four years. Like, you know the rules, right? Yes. (laughs) And you know, I actually was wanting to ask you, Laura, as you were going over all the traits of like what a good parent can do or... I was wondering, like, how do you feel like an SLP can really incorporate those things? I think for me, the touch one is a little touchy, right? And this is not the first time this has come up in a book that we've read. But I do think that we can just like a little tap on the shoulder or maybe a high five or a fist bump, something like that to kind of encourage. What about like, what about a side hug? We can do a little a little squeeze, right? Like when you're walking with a kid, couldn't you give them a little side hug? It's like, I go back to Lisa Murphy. Kids do need physical touch. It is so vitally important for their development and for their feeling of safety. The fact that we have this weird feeling, I continue to have my private clients just crawl all over me. (laughs) And it's like, I'm loosening up. I'm like deprogramming that school attitude of like, you can't touch kids. You can't touch kids. Right. But yes, the other ways, I mean, the scaffolding, obviously, so important. Obviously, yeah. The way we praise kids can be. So yeah, we start with like being warm, probably also acknowledging, I don't know, just, just going out of your way to acknowledge when you see a kid doing something that you're impressed with or proud of making them feel using the strategies we learned in social emotional learning in the brain, like just making them feel special and safe and like you care about them and then supportive. Yeah. And thinking about the quality of your praise, right? Yeah. I try to think about the quality a lot with my own child and with the speech kids instead of just saying like, wow, way to go. You got it right. Or like, good job, which like, I love good job, but it's so generic. I love saying like, wow, I could tell you tried a couple times and your determination paid off or like good job focusing or like good job keeping at it. I mean, literally, I was doing that with my daughter last night. We were doing some like reading homework. There were some sight words that were really hard and she tried like four or five times. I could see her frustration kind of building, but then she got it right. And I knew like, whoa, this is my moment to kind of swoop in and say like, wow, I saw you trying and trying and trying. And in the end, you got it. That's such a good feeling trying to like just support that because those moments just pass. And then maybe all she would remember is that frustration of like, I couldn't get it right. You know? Yeah. So I've also been incorporating Tara's reflexive questioning kind of it's almost like, you know, like. If a kid says something and I go, whoa, that sounded amazing. How did you how did you make it like that? And then they have to think about what their tongue was doing and kind of describe it. And maybe they'll just go like, I don't know. It just came out that way. And you're like, well, I loved it. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Like kind of just getting them thinking so that they can be evaluating. And when they hear themselves do something good, they know it. It's like internal. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think. Yeah, we can incorporate so much of this as SLPs. And most of us already kind of do it too. Like scaffolding is so natural for us because we've been doing it for so long. 
And unfortunately, I think some of these things fall into that same case of like, when you do something so many times that it seems so obvious, right to us. So it's always important to like, go over it again, think about it, maybe there's opportunities for us to do it more that are kind of passing us by because it feels so intuitive at this point. Yeah, there certainly is that thing where when you've been in SLP for long enough, stuff does I don't know, you you do forget that you have that like special SLP magic that maybe doesn't come naturally to everybody or that newer SLPs are still kind of growing into. We do have something kind of special about us, right? This stuff does, a lot of times when we hear it, we go, of course, doesn't everybody do that? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And then the other, one more issue, if we know this information about parents and then we're observing parents that are not doing these things like how can we support parents to be more authoritative I guess it's easy to teach parents to be more consistent with like rules and stuff it's easy to teach parents about how to praise there are little ways that we can like drop little nuggets or give them little handouts about stuff but basically it's always that feeling of like I don't want to overstep and tell a parent how to be with their kid yeah it's hard And I mean, parenting is so touchy. And like, even in my own life, I can think of people who are more on the permissive side and more on the super strict side. And maybe it's just a conversation about balance. I mean, I don't know if you say something like, hey, I noticed Timmy is a lot more responsive to me when I, you know, ask him to do something and then follow it up with a compliment or when I compliment him first and then I ask him to try again, I notice he's a lot more willing to try. Yeah. I don't even know if that feels like stepping on toes or I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I think that's a good way to do it. The compliment sandwich or whatever. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, like, I noticed that you do this really well. Well, I also, (laughs) I love a compliment sandwich. I am always doing compliment sandwiches with parents. It works. Uh, (laughs) Okay. In the next chapter, we're going to see how schools can embrace the same principles and take advantage of brain plasticity. It's called Reimagining High School. I think from here on out, we're just doing one chapter a week, so it's kind of like smooth sailing. So next week, join us for our discussion of Chapter 8. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss, and we'd love for you to weigh in. Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.